Welcome to the uh, Free Rohingya Coalition Genocide Podcast. Um, I am Zani, and I'm incredibly honored and, and pleased to, to have um, uh, this week's a very distinguished uh, conversationalist. Um, his name is uh, Kevin Abosh. Uh, he lives in New York City, and uh, he has a, a long history of um, intimate um, understanding of um, you know, atrocity crimes, particularly the, um, the Holocaust uh, through his father, who um, escaped the, um, uh, you know, Nazi-occupied Europe on a program called Kinder Transport. Uh, um, you know, about 1,000 plus children, or maybe even a greater number, uh, were rescued uh, through this Kinder Transport program. And his father was one of those uh, uh, young children who benefited from this uh, humanitarian rescue. Um, Kevin is a, a conceptual artist uh, who combines uh, his conceptual artwork, um, you know, uh, the, with his uh, humanistic uh, passion for activism, and uh, he has done massive number of uh, well-known works. Um, and the most, uh, you know, perhaps like the uh, the most eye-catching or the uh, headline-making uh, the, the piece of work is his uh, sold. Um, um, a, a potato a photographer, a photography that fetched uh, over, um, you know, the one million euro. And uh, he will talk about monetary value of his work versus the intrinsic and um, artistic value. So, so welcome, uh, Kevin. Can you tell us why you do what you do? Uh, you, you don't define yourself as a photographer, uh, although you are also, you know, internationally known as such. Um, just, uh, you know, uh, the, take the audiences uh, through your work, personal, intellectual, and, and spiritual as well. Sure, sure. Uh, well, thank you for having me. Um, I, I, I think I first identified as an artist uh, in 1989, so, you know, roughly 30 years ago. Um, this is not to say I wasn't making art before. Uh, it just happens to be, uh, it's that, it's that, that that moment where I, I was not afraid to say I am an artist and I am making uh, art with the intention of making art. But before that, and for much of my childhood, um, I grew up in Los Angeles, uh, well, between Los Angeles and Europe, actually. All my summers and winters were um, in either uh, Germany or France or England or Ireland. Uh, I have a German Jewish father and an Irish mother. And I... Um, I, I was ve very much into science, uh, it, so much so that it was it was a part of my identity. Uh, I had an aptitude for math and chemistry and physics, and uh, you know, I people you know people always ask kids, you know, what do you do want to do when you grow up? Um, actually, I had two answers. One was writer, and then the other one would be like mechanical engineer, you know, physicist. Um, and so uh, I, I was exposed to art a lot as a child. Um, a little bit in the household. It's not, my, my parents didn't collect art. Uh, they had an appreciation for art, but they had friends. Uh, they had some friends who were uh, avid art collectors. So I was exposed to some pretty remarkable work at a young age. Um, and I was, I was, uh, I was also uh, challenged. Uh, I couldn't just look at it and make a flippant comment as, as, a, as a child might do, like, oh, I don't like that. They would never just, you know, it was always like, oh, really? Uh, what is it you don't like about it? And then, you know, kid, put on the spot, well, I just, I just don't like it. And then, but it, they wouldn't let me off the hook. A big deep dive into uh, how does it make you feel? Do you understand it? Would you like to know the context? Uh, 
and understanding, especially conceptual art, uh, as this as something uh, very much aside from some some more kind of uh, traditional uh, forms of art. Um, I, I I like the idea of being an artist from an early age. I heard stories of. Uh, uh, you know, Picasso being able to uh, buy a lunch with a little sketch instead of having to pay for it. There was something magical, almost alchemical about taking, in a sense, nothing, something from your mind uh, and, uh, and, and, and with, with an inexpensive uh, implement, uh, creating something uh, and that having, having value, not just, not just financial value, but uh, cultural value, artistic value. Um, that really resonated with me, that, that, uh, that ability. Um, but I wasn't sure where my own artistic talent, if I had any, uh, you know, resided. Um, and I continued, uh, you know, designing, um, I was designing furniture. I was designing bicycles. I was innovating with material science at a young age when I saw the, the space shuttle, uh, the, the first space shuttle take off. And I learned that the tiles, the insulating tiles underneath were held together with epoxy. Um, I thought, wow, I wonder if I could, uh, since I didn't know how to weld or braze, I wonder if I could connect bicycle tubes with epoxy. So very early on, I was, uh, I, I, I ordered, I remember I, somehow I, I hustled some company out of some uh, uh, aerospace adhesive and uh, I was, I was, you know, curing in my, in my oven at home in the kitchen and stinking up the house with the smell of, uh, you know, hot epoxy. Um, I was, I was, I was a, like a mad scientist. Um, so when it was time to, to study, uh, I didn't actually want to go into engineering at the point at the time because, uh, well, I little know it all. I felt I knew it all, so I thought, well, what are, like biology, you know, microbiology. That sounds uh, that sounds fancy. So I I started to I, I went in uh, to study uh, microbiology, um, and uh, and then you know, cut to a few years later, science just wasn't doing it for me. The questions in life that I wanted answers to, uh, I just couldn't answer away with science or math. I was never one to uh you know look when i when i when i look at a professor on a on a, on a blackboard uh with, with uh, you know his fingers bleeding from scribbling equations trying to make sense of the time space continuum or how a black hole works i i it's rather tragic I, it's, it's like this futile attempt to understand something that perhaps we're not meant to understand so it was an easy transition for me to uh especially when i found out that art uh, as, a, as a practice uh um ritualistically brought me closer to to truths and 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 that was the that was the birth of the artist and it just happened to be that i was working with different i was working with mixed media and sculpture and and uh, and yes photography early on i was in berlin uh in germany and and uh and very quickly um specifically a, a trip back to los angeles after uh, after the wall came down in 1989 um, was it 1989 or 1990? Anyway, I always forget. But, uh, yeah, it was 89. Yeah, and so when I came when I came home to uh, Los Angeles, to my my father uh, to take care of him, he had some health issues. Um, uh, I, I got a lot of attention for, uh, for my photography, and the photography is just one aspect of one you know one tool in my repertoire, I suppose, as an artist, and and it got a lot of attention from uh, 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 a gentleman by the name of Henry Geltzoller, a uh, famous curator of. Uh, uh, a museum curator in New York and, and good friends with David Hockney. He introduced me to David Hockney. And next thing I knew, I was, uh, I was getting, I was making art and I was being commissioned and it just became part of who I was. Yeah. Um, you said something that strike, uh, struck me. 
you were look, you know, you're you're trying to like um, um, find some answers to some queries that you had. Um, the, 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 a like, what types of questions that you were, um, you know, th that were bothering you, you know, um, or like that you were curious about, and did it have any connection with um, your personal experience of growing up around your dad? You know, the, sure, the, sure. Uh, the, the stories, uh, tales, uh, the pains that he might have uh, expressed. Absolutely. Um, no, certainly. Uh, I was an only child, um, which I think is important because now that I have two young boys, uh, sons of my own, um, I realize that, uh, yes, of course, I love them equally. Uh, and there's a lot of love to go around, but they spend a lot of time with each other. Um, uh, I, I try to spend as much time as I can with them together and one-on-one, -on -one, and that can be rather challenging. Whereas in my household, especially my father who didn't go off to work every day, he was self-employed and, and pretty much worked from home, I had a lot of time with my parents. I had a lot of time with my father. Uh, he was the person I spoke to every day for years and years and years. Um, I was aware from a very early age, I can't remember when, but um, I, you know, I'm guessing around five years old, Probably, I knew my grandparents on my mother's side uh, because we used to visit them on on on, uh, on you know on vacations. But I think uh, at some point I probably asked you know where are your parents uh, right. to my father, and it was it was it was explained to me. It was never hidden from me that uh, there was an, an event that took place, and uh, because they were Jewish, uh, they were uh, shipped off to a concentration camp. I mean. You know, I knew what Auschwitz was. Uh, um, another I knew one, what... the incident. Sorry, uh, the Auschwitz and the other one, that the incident. So, 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 well, yeah. I, later on, I found out that they were they were first sent to Theresienstadt. Actually, when I was so listen, when I when I was a young boy, I did not know that they were sent to Theresienstadt and then subsequently to Auschwitz for the you know the execution. My father didn't either. My father didn't either. I'll, I'll explain in a bit how, how we came to even know that that was the case. Um, and so, so, so my father would tell me that, you know, my parents were, uh, you know, I never saw them again. Uh, he was 14 years old. Uh, his parents knew that the situation was getting rough. They had moved from Braunschweig or Magdeburg, actually, in Germany down. They went to, they went to, uh, to Prague thinking that was... Uh, you know, the safest place to go. Of course, it wasn't. Um, and well, then the, the uh, Nazis move in and occupy the Czech, uh, Czechoslovakia exactly, at the time. Right? Exactly. And uh, and thanks to a gentleman who, who whose name was not even known until decades later, Sir Nicholas Winton, uh, he had he, he created this uh, uh, system called the Kinder Transport, where they they were they managed to get some uh, children, Jewish children out of Europe uh, and over to England. Um, and my father was on the last train. Uh, of these children out of uh, out of uh, Prague, um, he was 14 years old. Uh, his parents, you know, obviously, I'm sure this was not an easy uh, an easy choice, uh, but it was the right choice. Um, and then he had never seen them again. And everybody has a different story. Everybody's Holocaust experience uh, is different. Um, his was just that, you know, he never heard from his parents again. So as a little kid, what do you think I was asking? Well, hold on a second. <laughs> How do you know they were killed? How do you know they were dead? Well, you know, come on, isn't there a chance? I, I remember frequently like, but, but, you know, but, but dad, isn't it, isn't it a little chance? And he said, he, I didn't understand as a kid, he's, you know, through the network of people and friends and family somehow 
<laughs> there would have been a way to connect, you know. Right. Um, and but as a kid, I was like, yeah, but there's still a chance, right? There's still a chance. And, but but there was uncertainty. He had never seen a body. He had never, uh, you know, there were there was no official documentation. And then I'm sitting at home one one afternoon. I, I'd come back from school in our breakfast room, and the post had arrived. And my father, I'm sitting there having a little after-school snack. My father's sitting there, um, and he opens up an envelope, and it was from the Simon Wiesenthal Center. Right, right, the Jewish and, um, center in um, LA. In Los Angeles, exactly, yeah. uh, which wasn't even that old at the time. Um, and he opened it up, and I can, I'll never forget, I'll never forget, because my father was very, very some people find it very difficult to even talk about their experience. They can't, you know, right, uh, right. they don't want to even talk about Germany. They don't want to talk, you know, it's, it's really, uh, it's difficult. He, on the other hand, was not. I think maybe because uh, he didn't, he was not, he was not in a camp watching, you know, babies' heads being, you know, bludgeoned. Uh, his experience was uh, perhaps in some way less traumatic or a different type right. of trauma. So he could talk about it. Um, and I never saw him well up with tears about it either. It was, uh, it was something that, was so long ago and he'd obviously he wasn't alone obviously millions of people uh were victims um but this day he opens this envelope and i can see tears welling up in his eyes which i was like i was i was floored i'd almost brought you know tears to my eyes immediately and how like, old were you sorry, sorry to interrupt i'm guessing i was around 11 Right, my daughter's age right. and my younger one's yeah, 11. Yeah, so, 11 so or 12. You, know, you could totally you know, relate to your, your oh, father. Yeah. So. Oh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And anyway, he proceeds to show me original documents of, you know, they kept meticulous documents, the Nazis, strangely right. so, as you know. I mean, every damn number. Oh, they're number very meticulous. Every, <laughs> oh, they knew to the, the minute that they were sent to this one. and the, So we found out they were first sent to Theresienstadt. Mm. Uh, and then after that, they were sent. Um, Auschwitz. Yeah, pretty late in the game too. They were unfortunate, but uh, you know they would have held on a few more months. But um, they were sent to Auschwitz, and I mean, but the, the it's really grotesque the, the records they kept. I mean, really. But anyway, so so we're looking at we're looking at this, and it, there was just something so. I guess it was the only this thing, this object, was this very uh, immediate connection to his parents. This horror, it was so, it was so well done and clinical. It was freaky, you know? And so he was, uh, you know, taken aback by that. And, uh, and I'll, ne I'll, I'll never forget that day. I never saw him after that day, you know, it was back to normal. But, you know, I, that, that, that for me was always the, the, the thing that blew me away is that it was relatively, relatively close in time. You know, it's not ancient history. I think when you speak to people about this, sometimes they think, you know, in their head, it's like something that happened a few hundred years ago. No, it's, it's relatively recent history, which is why when people talk, <laughs> when people say, oh, it could never happen again. Well, besides the fact that it is happening again, uh, right. you know, uh, it wasn't that long ago. <laughs> right. Um, and, 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 and so uh, the, the contrast between knowing his past and his connection to that horror and then sometimes just seeing him in Los Angeles, sitting on the sofa, like lying back on the sofa, watching like a banal show, like the Jerry Springer show or something. Right. I'd be right. like, wow, like, <laughs> wow. <laughs> how, does, how do these two realities fit in the same lifetime?
Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and I think I think like you know, for for the Jewish and and to a lesser extent Muslim communities in in, in Europe, yeah. Um, I think the uh, you know the underestimation that the, the past will repeat in in the most horrific way, and uh, that that has been going on for like you know, let's just say like five hundred years or so, you know, because yeah. uh, the Christian Europe, you know was built on the corpses and the blood of uh, non-Christians, you know, starting with Inquisition, the uh, papal authorities uh, subsidizing, uh, you know, all kinds of uh, um, crimes, including slave trade. You know, Columbus was funded uh, by King Philippe uh, or, or the, uh, one of the early Spanish kings, I think like Ferdinand, um, the, the, the Pope um, allowed the, um, uh, the, uh, the, the, Spani uh, the, the Spanish crown to use uh, you know a certain percentage to fund these expeditions yeah uh, to find riches and then to uh, then like you know the 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 Spaniard king and queen were among the earliest to be uh, you know certified by the by the pope and the, the the Vatican as the Christian monarchs yeah, yeah. and then so uh, but you said something in in the um, in our exchanges uh, you know uh, the uh, previously that your father, you asked your dad about this. Uh, did you, did you not know this was going to happen? Uh, you, you got a, a quite a, a interesting and and painful response. It's it's again as a as a child, you're trying to make sense of all of this. You know how can people be so cruel? How can something like this happen? Uh, you know, is you know, worried? Can it happen again? And I and I and I used to ask him like, did you not see this coming? Right. And, uh, and, and, and the thing that, you know, really resonated with me was like, yeah, you know, there are signs and the, you certainly see the, 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 the tides shifting, but he, he, he said, it's amazing how quickly the rhetoric, right. Yeah. Can, de can devolve into right. wholesale slaughter. Right. Right. That's just, you know, and, and, uh, and and he was he 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 was big about you know the power of words. My whole life, uh, I've I've really recognized I've recognized it was kind of drilled into me the power of words. You know, you choose your words wisely. Right. Beware of the words spoken, right. you know, by various people. Yeah, I mean, your dad was obviously not the only one, or his family was not the only Jewish family that uh, did not foresee how horrible the turn of the events would turn out. Yeah. Uh, because uh, you know, the, the, I mean, you you know, uh, Raphael Lemkin, the yeah. uh, the man who coined the term uh, genocide and uh, basically gifted uh, the world modern uh, post uh, Second World War, uh, you know, the Genocide Convention. You know. yeah. He he was one of the few who basically escaped because he was able to grasp the magnitude of evil that was about to hit the Jewish community and and other victims as well. Yeah. And, yeah. and so his family and extended family refused to heed his warning. Say like, you know, grandma, granddad, like things are going to get better. They're like, you know, according to his own writing, he said they thought that this was just another wave of regular persecution that the Jewish communities suffer across centuries. Yeah? But um, I, I, I want to ask you how that may have impacted your interest in, you know, other oppressed communities, the contemporary ones. Okay, you know, let, let, let's, 
I, I mean, I think it's very, it's very simple. Uh, aside from I, I, my interest in, in how and why we value anything at all, because my work primarily is about identity and value. Right. And, uh, and no matter, it, pretty much no matter where, where you're approaching this subject from, you end up asking the question, uh, you know, why do you value this, but you don't value that? Or why is this valued more than that? And it's usually illogical. It usually ends up something kind of perverse and vulgar and nonsensical, totally, you know, irrational. Um, so aside from my interest in that, um, I feel I have an obligation. I have an obligation, um, were it not for, you know, my grandparents couldn't help them so much, but a man and whoever helped facilitate his effort saved my father. There was somebody who had the sense that, that not just the humanity, but the, they just, you know, they just did it. They, they did what they could do. They saved a lot of lives. If it weren't for that man and people like that man, I would not be here. My children would not be here. Right? right. So I have an obligation. I have an ethical obligation, maybe a moral obligation, but I certainly have an obligation to do the same where I see, uh, you know, the same playing out today. And we right. see it playing out with the Rohingyas and we see it playing out with the Uyghur and other groups in Africa. And uh, uh, it's, it's, it's and, and, and art and activism are inextricably connected for me, especially since my work is around value. Um, uh, I'm, I'm not, I mean, up until this point, I'm not sure I'm, uh, I, 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 I don't know to what, ex to what extent the value of my work uh, you know, with the impact it has. Uh, all I know what I can do is I can educate and I can, I can sh shed a little light on, on situations that people might otherwise not be aware of. And, uh, you know, I, I, it would be easy for me to say, well, I don't need to do that because, uh, you know, this person does it or this artist or this diplomat or, but you know, I, I do my share. I do my share in, uh, in, uh, in bringing some awareness to it. But in my case, I think because of the tools I use and, and, and the way I work with photography, um, I, I bring a human face to something that otherwise can be quite abstract, right. you know? I mean, right. um, you know, it, until you look at the face of, of, a, of a victim, until you look at the face of someone who's oppressed, uh, I mean, it's, it's so simple, but you just, they are something other. They, right. they're, they're almost, they may not even be human to you. They're right, a concept. Right. Yeah. And it is, yeah. Go ahead. I mean, you spend a lot of time with the, uh, uh, the, the Uyghurs, you know, basically originally uh, uh, Eastern terms, um, you know, who embrace uh, uh, Islam as their main religion. And, um, you know, they have been centrally annexed or their territory or region has been annexed by the communist China since 1948, 49. And yeah. can you can you tell us uh, about um, your work with the Uyghurs? Uh, you've taken uh, I've seen sure. pictures of some Uyghur men in your living room. Uh, yeah, um, I mean, so so I was a, I was aware of this community. I was aware of the the ethnic Uyghurs, you know, uh, you know, uh, as as a people, um, and 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 roughly where they were situated in the world, and that's about it. Um, and then about uh, let's call it. 10, 11 years ago, uh, I became friends with uh, Wu Kaishi. He was the uh, student leader of the Tiananmen Square protests uh, in China of 1989. Um, and uh, it turns out he's, he's Uyghur. I didn't even know that at the time. When I first met him, I didn't know that. Soon I 
soon I came to understand that. Um, and again, because I knew who he was, um, I became interested in the plight of his people uh, uh, deeply. Uh, and, and then, of course, I, and this was an ongoing uh, uh, tension between the Chinese and the Uyghur Muslims uh, in, uh, in northern China. Um, but then in the last few years, it took an especially uh, ugly turn with the, uh, you know, re-education camps. Right. Um, and that, that to me was just like, you know, can't we start talking about camps? I go into action. Yeah, just... yeah. I mean, like, you, you, you must be aware with the, uh, you know, the, uh, the, uh, the news reports about uh, Donald Trump um, telling Xi Jinping that, you know, uh, uh, yeah. it's okay yeah. to go ahead with your camps, but just help me oh, with the yeah. re-election. Yeah. And then like your last week, he signed the executive order. Full right? of shit. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, and um, how do you, how, you know, w one of your uh, collaborators, artist colleagues, um, Ai Weiwei, and then, um, you know, he also uh, grew up uh, in part in Xinjiang, where the, yes, um, the, the, uh, the Uyghurs have been um, in, exactly. put in um, these like, so-called uh, vocational education yeah. or yeah. training camps. Yeah, but, you know, yeah. camps, camps, Usually, like you know, universities and vocational education camps do not have or uh, uh, are all not organized around you know uh, 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 elect electrified walls and with uh, you know guards with machine guns, right? Yeah. And can you can you tell us about your collaboration with Ai Weiwei and um, if, yeah. if there's any connection? Uh, with uh, his other human rights, um, I mean, he's also very in, much involved in human rights activism. Sure, sure. Refugees. So, so, um, I mean, I, I, I guess, I guess, uh, you know, in the last twenty years, I've made it a point of uh, doing. I, I, I did. I've done portraits of a lot of, uh, you know, human rights figures, uh, from Malala. To uh, uh, Aung San Suu Kyi, Harry Belafonte, but like Aung San Suu Kyi, for example, um, I was the first person to do a portrait of her after she came out of house arrest when she went to go get her, uh, you know, Nobel Prize a few right. years later. Um, I mean, I, I have to say, you know, I'm not, I don't need any, uh, I don't need any brownie points for this, but um, anytime I see somebody who's elevated to the status that she was bells start to ring. I'm like, what's going on here? And, and you know, I mean, in the, it's, it's easy to look back now, but, uh, you know, the West really did a number on her, elevating her to deity status. Uh, she's not alone. Uh, and and so th that would be my interest. So whenever I, whenever I engage with somebody artistically, uh, it, it just, it, it means that I'm going to follow them for the rest of my days. So I became uh, especially interested uh, that my you know Nobel Prize winning subject uh, was re you know returning uh, home, and uh, and so I followed her. I followed her uh, her return to politics, and uh, like everybody was shocked. You know, uh, I wasn't even I you know again because I don't really I didn't understand the nuance of the situation at the time, right. and perhaps even today, not as much as I should. Uh, I was, I, 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 I came to, uh, you know, we were on the phone. You know, I was calling other people like, have you, have you, are you reading this? Like, is it, is, is this, 
didn't, she won the Nobel Prize. Like, this is not congruous with, uh, with, with, with winning a Nobel Prize. Uh, and everybody was shocked. You know, I don't want to name right. names, but I mean, some pretty famous people and Nobel. Well, Malala called her out on Twitter and said, you know, right, right. Give, the, give the damn thing back. Um, but that was my interest. That, that really sparked my interest in the, the plight of the Rohingya people. And I, I dove deep into that. So Kai Shi introduced me to Ai Weiwei uh, years earlier. I did, a, I did some work with him. I did a portrait and we did some fun stuff together. And then um, in 2018, in the beginning of 2018, um, the New York Times did a big, a big story on my, uh, on my work. And the, the crypto. Uh, yeah, I, I did, I did some work where I, um, uh, I, I, I tokenized myself, uh, in a yeah, ritualistic so process, blood. my own blood. I turned myself into not a cryptocurrency. That's what the press called it, but a crypto token, a crypto you know, I, I brought myself into the virtual realm and, and, and if the world wanted to commodify me for various successes I had, I decided, okay, well, I'll take control of that narrative. Anyway, this project played out. If you want, we can talk about that more. But, um, but uh, Ai Weiwei, uh, he, he read this uh, New York Times article, I guess, uh, two or three times. Because I, I remember he said, uh, Kevin, I read this two or three times. I still don't really understand it. It was very technical and complicated and at the time, blockchain technology still uh, kind of a mystery, mystery to people. Um, and I, and I, I happened to be in Berlin, and we chatted about blockchain and empowering people that have traditionally been uh, disenfranchised, and, and then, again, shifting power from the haves to the have-nots. And, um, and we, we, we started a, a project around, uh, around value. You know, one of the things I found over, over the years uh, was not only do people have a com complicated relationship with value in general, how they value things, but when things are priceless, like human life, for example, right. um, they uh, they really don't know they really don't know what to do. So we 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 work together on a project around that which is priceless, including human life, and it was uh, the the general narrative was around uh, bringing awareness to the Rohingya. Right, which is something right. that, as you know, he did his movie, and he's right. been very, very active. Uh, yeah. Can I can I pick up on 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 one thing that you just mentioned? You know, you feel that you you are being commoditized, and and uh, you want to take charge of that narrative. And, you know, like obviously, like none of us can escape this um yeah. this world where everything is commoditized and commoditized, commodified. Yeah. You know, I me mean? yeah. going back. I mean, like are you being commoditized, and uh, I'm going to be provocative yeah. here, and. Yeah. Uh, um, uh, you know, fetching like you know, um, uh, the world standard uh, or, or record-breaking prices for the artistic uh, uh, output that you have come up with, whereas in fact, you know, the, say let's say like you know, um, four hundred years ago, human beings were commoditized and you know shipped across uh, the Atlantic and institutionalized as um, you know basically properties, commodities. Yeah. yeah. Can yeah. you can you shed some thoughts on uh, or your thoughts on or on how complicated this relationship is between us humans who cannot be prized and the world, uh, you know, the, the dominant um, narrative that uh, makes everything into a price tag. Look, you know, absolutely. From the moment, from the, mo I, from the moment we're born, they put a price tag on you. That boy is full of potential, that girl, she's worthless. You know that that one that one. You know, it, it, right away, right away, there's a value on, you. Right. and uh, 
uh, you look, let's, let's, let's face it. If, uh, if there were some obvious, uh, <laughs> if there were some obvious, uh, something that uh, the Rohingya people had uh, that could be, you know, <laughs> instantly uh, turned into mass amounts of wealth. Uh, well, they would not be they would not be treated the same way. Um, the uh, yeah, this is this is the, this is the thing. Um, so I mean, look for me, it's it's it's. I talk about being feeling commodified, uh, and it's 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 a it's a bit playful in a way, um, but. Look, as an artist, you don't want the attention to be around the monetary value of your work. You want it to be about around the artistic value of your work. Uh, for me, the metric of success, if you will, as an artist, is how quickly does the discussion move uh, from my work to something uh, of, of, of substance? Uh, how quickly does the, the uh, how quickly does a conversation grow out of the work? In other words, oh, look at that interesting piece of work. Oh, what does that say about my own value system? And then you know, that's, that's the real value for me. Um, so yeah, so I, I just, it, it, and, and it was funny because on the same, by the same token, I tried to control the narrative, so to speak with, uh, by commodifying myself, um, only to be re-commodified when people tried to speculate that these crypto tokens I had made of, of myself that were kind of connected to my blood and, uh, some other stuff, they, they, they were, um, uh, they were being treated as uh, as, uh, as something that could go up in value. So right. I had just kind of re-commodified myself, but at least it was on my own terms. Yeah, but the I think there's also another personal um, the angle uh, that uh, the, for, because your your mother is Irish. Yeah, when and then obviously um, a single picture of um, a potato fetching say like a million euro. Um, you know, everyone would sit up and, uh, you know, uh, listen to any news report or pick up a newspaper with that line, you know. Uh, uh, the, do, do you think there is uh, um, the contextual information, the uh, the readers or the uh, uh, the onlookers or, you know, the, the, the non-artists, the spectators bring to your picture, you know, the fact that, you know, you will be presented as, uh, say, uh, you know, the... Uh, the, you know, a part Irish uh, artist doing this potato. Uh, the minute you you marry the two words, Irish potato, all of a sudden there is a, the historical event that has shook the conscience of the world at the time. The Irish famine, you know, no, that's un by that's, the policy. That's undeniable, that connection. Uh, you'll, have to, you'll have to believe me when I say I certainly consciously didn't do that. Right. Uh, for me, it had nothing to do with uh, being Irish. Uh, it didn't. Uh, no, it just didn't. And it happened to be an Irish potato. We were living in Ireland at the time, but it, it really, it really, consciously had nothing to do with that. The potato for me just served as a proxy for the human experience, um, and and it's as simple as that. It was something that you know at the time I thought uh, it was relatively worthless, taken for granted, uh, plucked from the earth. Uh, you know and then treated not with an awful lot of respect. Um, uh, what's interesting is the public's reaction. The art world, uh, you know, was, you know, that's just, uh, not, nothing, nothing, nothing new. A piece of artwork sells for a lot of money. The public went absolutely crazy because they're, they're, all they saw is potato, million euros you know right, it's like right. that you know so so uh, and i quite frankly i think if i would have done like a carrot or an avocado there wouldn't have been as much kind of uh you know hoopla 
but there's something about the potato. Um, the, but, but, you know, recently Maurizio Catalan did a thing, a stunt at a museum, uh, sorry, at an art show, uh, where he, he took a banana and, and taped it to a wall and it sold for a couple hundred grand. Um, and again, the whole world went crazy, just like mine did. It circled around the world 10 times in, a, in 72 hours. Everybody's talking about it. But you know what else they were talking about? They were talking about value and how and why you value things. So for, forget for a second that, you know, I was fortunate enough to sell a piece of art for a lot of money. What really happened was tens, if not hundreds of millions of people around the world uh, started to talk about value. Because in the same, in the, as, as soon as you say that's absurd, that's perverse, then you have to, then you have to defend your own purchasing decisions. You know, right. did it make sense to buy that $100 t-shirt? Did it make sense to buy the $20,000 car? Did it make sense to have the $50 lunch? Did it make sense to buy the $12 CD? I mean, where do you draw the line? You know, there are people, I, you know, you know as well as I do, there are people, if you tell them that you spent, uh, you know, uh, $25 for lunch, uh, $25, that's what I make in two months. Like, come on. Right, exactly. You know? So, uh, you know, <laughs> you know, that's, that's what I mean, is that when you start to break apart our value systems, they make, they start to make very little sense. And, and by somebody's standard, it's going to be perverse. Yeah, yeah. And then the, the you know, also, you mentioned that when you take, a, um, you know, photographs of human faces, and it, it's, it's almost as if, uh, um, you know, you unmask them, you know, uh, in the sense that um, the, um, you, you're not really elevating them into anything. For you as an artist, um, right. it's just another phase. Yeah? And, and also, I think like in our earlier conversation um, when I was in New York with you, you said you were interested in um, taking you know, a hundred pictures or hundreds of pictures of, uh, mm. you know, uh, uh, individuals in Rangoon or Mandalay or in Burma, my country, uh, where you would just simply say Burmese, you know, yes. erasure of like, you know, ethnic, religious, uh, e you know, the physical features and lumping them into this, um, you know, nationality or people category. Yeah. It's so uh, important. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, can you explain, you know, how your own attempt to portray um, identities as simply as essentially humans? Right? You know, uh, so uh, I, 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 I use the word uh, honesty a lot. I'm trying or you know, I'm trying to I'm trying to capture an honest something honest, which is also an abstract notion too. what what the hell is honest mean. But for me, it means um, when I, when in, in the context of a portrait, a human portrait, it's, it's, it's where I remove the mask of persona and identity and reputation. Um, it means that the subject's ego is not engaged in trying to manipulate the moment. And I'm not engaged with my ego trying to manipulate the moment and impose myself on the work. That's equally important. And and when that can happen, and this can happen for me with an inanimate object as well, when that line between myself and the subject is blurred to the point where I don't know where I end and you begin and vice versa, this is the biggest high that I can possibly uh, have and probably keeps me coming back to it. 
Um, and it's an effort, it, it, the, whole, the whole process is an exercise in mitigating my own ego as well. Uh, not permanently, but in the moment, I can't do, I cannot, I cannot get the portrait I want unless our egos are uh, disengaged. Hello? Not disengaged, if mine is engaged. Right. Um, no, I, and, I, I get and, you, coming, coming from, uh, you know, uh, philosophically speaking, I, um, you know, from a Buddhist. But let's paradigm. talk. Let's talk about. Let's talk about stripping it down, like you were talking yeah. about. You know, the, uh, um, you know, I, I think about it in terms. I did. A, I did some work recently around implicit bias in uh, in coding, in uh, in uh, software, and in uh, uh, law enforcement uh, software. Um, it, it exists, and uh, it, it, there are two kind of uh, programming methods: uh, discrimination and classification. Um, especially when you're talking about artificial intelligence. And uh, I, I think before you can discriminate, you have to classify. Therefore, if I don't classify, I believe it somehow makes it more difficult to discriminate. Right. Um, you mentioned coding. And in, in one of your um, you know, um, uh, uh, media essays about you, um, you were intrigued by the fact that the large percentage of uh, uh, girls, you know, drop out of this, you know, early initiation oh. or coding program. And then that's that too, you know, all of a sudden you said, you know, I don't look at the woman in Silicon Valley the same way I did before. Can you, can you talk about that? Uh, that's a sure, know, rather fascinating sure. um, uh, phenomenon. Sure. And then particularly yeah. like it involves the uh, essentially, um, you, know, um, you know, clearly a very, very gendered subject here. Whew. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, so the, 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 what, you're, what you were referencing is a friend of mine, uh, James Welton, founded an organization called Coder Dojo. It's an open source platform for teaching children how to code all over the world and started with a couple of them in Ireland and now there are a couple thousand all over the world. And uh, uh, what you find in many, if not most of them, I didn't find this as much in Asia, actually, but more in the West, um, is that, uh, right, at, a, at around age 10 or 11, it was 50-50 it was, it was boys and girls, but then at around age 10 or 11, the girls just drop off. Right. And it seems that it's because at that age, the boys in the class were interested in something and they were really trying to dominate situations. Uh, the girls seemed interested in some other things. I mean, in Silicon Valley now, it's it's a I, I, anybody I know with a girl in Silicon Valley, they send their they send their daughters to um, to uh, all girls coding camps, where and then they excel and they really excel. The thing about women in Silicon Valley, you know, it's it's uh, it's been you know uh, as, as we know uh, a dismal situation for a long time. Uh, great uh, gender in, in, inequity in, uh, in Silicon Valley. Um, you do have, you would think from my portraits that uh, they're running the whole show, but uh, I, I photographed, you know, about a hundred uh, phenomenal women. Um, and, and they are phenomenal because the odds are stacked against them. The stories I hear, the stories I hear, you know, from uh, the things they have to worry about. If they go in, if they're if they're showing up at well, aside from getting you know hit on by venture capitalists and and uh, put in awkward positions, um, they found out that if they show up with curly hair, a, a friend of mine, she said that uh, every meeting she started A/B testing. If she showed up with curly hair, uh, she would never get a second meeting 
from the VC firm, where if she showed up with straight hair, she would always get a, mm. uh, a second meeting. When she wore glasses and when she changed her hair color as well, it, she, so they keep refining, refining. Another one told me that um, as soon as she put on a black pantsuit, uh, then these sort of, uh, you, know, you know, uncomfortable, uh, uh, you know, come-ons at parties stopped. Um, you know, so they're, they're, you know, they're, they're, the, the, the other thing is that, you know, there's a very, uh, a boys club in Silicon Valley that existed. So they weren't privy to investments that a lot of the, the men were because the men are sharing tips with each other, like, Hey, get in on this company or this one, you know, and the women were just out of this loop. Of course. But, you know, you know, I, I have to say a lot has, a lot of progress has been made in a very short time. And by the way, this period that I did this project was right before the whole Me Too thing exploded, which was a, you know, which was a whole lot, another, another thing. But um, the, uh, you know, I, I don't tweet, I don't tweet a lot. Uh, lately I did a few, but I, 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 I actually haven't done a lot of, you know, tweeting and social media things. But, you know, one day I, I go, I go to the Guggenheim Museum up the road. Uh, every floor was curated by a different artist. And one of the floors was curated by Jenny Holzer. And all the uh, artists that she curated for her, her floor were female artists. And they were amazing. And I'm walking through there and I just think to myself, wow, how the work of female artists has been devalued, um, you know, always and continues to be today. So I, I thought to myself, I don't know why you're compelled. I thought, you know what, I'm going to tweet something and I and I chose my words carefully I even avoided punctuation to be especially leading I didn't want this to seem like I didn't want it to seem like I'm telling somebody what to do is it a thought is it a I just wrote buy more art made by female artists that's all I wrote right. note to self I don't know and it didn't devolve into hell but right away it's like why can't you just buy art from artists why don't you? It's like the people now. You talk about Black Lives Matter. All lives matter. Right. You know, and and you know what? Somebody, somebody, somebody online. I wish I could remember the name to give them credit, but they said it's kind of like uh, when a little kid comes up to your the mommy and says, uh, "Do you love me?" Can you imagine the mommy said, "Well, but I love all people." Right. Right. Exactly. Like, exactly. <laughs> uh, yeah. Right. But you know, can we get a little love for you know black people? Can we get a love for women? Can we get a you know? There, sometimes this needs to be brought to the attention, you know, and, right. and then and then I had something that really shocked me was uh, and you know how that false outrage can get out of control on Twitter. Somebody suggested that I was infantilizing women and sitting them at the kitty table because I had suggested that people buy female uh, art by, by women. Well, well, now, that, granted, that, I had hundreds of women weighing in grateful for it. Yeah, I mean, like that would be like, um, you know, um, saying that um you know black black life matters is is another identity politics being infantilized uh, by the media right. and the liberals you know what i mean so, so my, my but my big takeaway fortunately at, at first i was like first i was like oh my god is this gonna am i gonna end up is, am i gonna be like branded a misogynist or like is it, where how is this going to evolve all it takes is like uh, you know rihanna to come out and like you know inadvertently say something about me and then my life is ruined I, so, and yeah, i'm like i'm gonna take I, this I, down I and my you. wife is like don't take it down i actually did take it down eventually but <laughs> i did but um the uh what was i gonna say um yeah. Anyway, the the uh, you know that was a battle I, I I did I did choose to fight and uh, you know no my big takeaway was if 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 this is how an ally is treated 
you know, I'm not going to feel sorry for me, but if this is how an ally is treated, imagine what it's really like to be a woman. Yeah, <laughs> like, you know? yeah, yeah. So, yeah. The, at, at the same time, you know, the, um, we we uh, we have to be careful about um, uh, this whole paternalism and uh, mansplaining. You know, I agree. It, it, no, I agree. It's yeah. like you know, I I won't complain. I we're not walking on eggshells and like we have nothing to complain because, you know, it, it uh, the, the this has been a men's world. Uh, the, can you? share your thoughts on you know the this um you know denig attempt to denigrate and um you know so invalidate the uh, the you know the black lives matters message that hey look you know we have suffered and then and then none yeah. of us you know uh, the uh, the whatever our of uh, the background we have to be honest we have never suffer the you know the 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 level of uh, inhumanity yeah. that the um you know enslaved africans have you know yeah, even exactly. not no i mean i came from a colonial or formerly colonized country right. and i can talk about you know the oppression uh, at the hands of the white uh, british colonial rule but but never were my people or our people there are uh, subjected to the level of like inhumanity cruelty yeah i mean talk about commodification yeah yeah and yeah. Uh, the, the, can you can you express some um um the thoughts on uh, on this because i follow you on twitter and you have um uh, you know been extremely supportive and and and, and conversely angry at uh, donald trump and uh, his essentially certified yeah. uh, fashion, yeah. you know. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, and 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 for anybody who should go to my Twitter and wonder why there's not a lot there, I use it like Snapchat. If you haven't noticed, I I put something out, I you know, people respond or they don't respond, whatever. But eventually, I delete it. I use it like Snapchat. I, I don't know why. Um, the yeah. You know, I'm interested in the weaponization of information, disinformation, misinformation. Um, uh, I'm working on a film right now that's around all of that uh, and all the, the the different players involved. And uh, look, Donald Trump, I'm not a fan, obviously, but I I have I have friends that are uh, you know get physically ill. They can't watch him. They get they 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 they, they really can't. They they can't sleep at night. They're angry. Um, I understand that feeling of malaise. I do get a little bit of feeling of malaise, but I'm actually, I, like, he's always been a sick man to me. Like, you know, I, I call it malignant narcissism. Maybe he's got a bit of dementia. I don't know what his problem is, but let's face it. The I, the bigger problem are all the sycophants around him that yeah. uh, enable Millions, him. millions. That, well, millions, yes. There's, there's, there, there are bands that radiate out, but that inner band is just, oh, reprehensible. I mean, it's shameful. It's shameful. And the same people that's called him an idiot and a bigot and a racist, the same people, like Lindsey Graham and, and uh, uh, you know, and then now they kiss his ass. I mean, well, I, I, Mitch, I'm not a politician. Mitch, Mitch, I, Mitch McConnell. I mean, come on. Yeah. You know, and, 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 uh, and you know, and I'm I'm cynical. Every time he tweets about anything, I just look at the market moving and seeing people making billions of dollars. When he says he's going to slap tariffs on China, the market moves one way. They've already placed their bets the day before. He says it's going to. Don't worry, everything's been solved. The market moves the other way. They've already placed their bets. I mean, I I assume that. I mean, maybe it'll never be discovered, but 
I think I think there are billions and billions of dollars being made. I think it's a machine they've created. I met somebody today. I won't I won't out them. I met them on the street today. Somebody <laughs> well known, well known who's made a lot of money in the stock market, and uh, he he said that he said that uh, you know Donald Trump's one of the most ignorant people he's ever met. Uh, he characterized him as smart. I'm not so sure about that, but uh, he said Donald Trump is good for business. I mean, I guess if you're you know, doing hundred million dollar trades every day. He's good for business. Right. Uh, and, and it's not my world. I'm just looking at the reality on the street and I don't like what I see. And he's got to go. They've got to go. Not he, they, they all, they all have to go. Yeah. But you know, like it went, I mean, like Facebook is not known as an ethical force in the world. Like Facebook was a call out, um, even by the congressional, um, uh, committee. Um, you know, just in the middle or right after the uh, genocidal killings uh, of the Rohingyas. And also the United Nations also uh, pointedly told Facebook that you have not done enough. Because like, you know, Facebook has become this, um, for, the, for those, you know, who attempt to promote the, uh, the you know, racial divisions and religious uh, uh, bigotry among all of us around the world, Facebook has become this hate book, uh, the platform where extremist groups uh, are having a field day. And then when Facebook and Twitter, you know, these are two companies, mega companies that refuse to regulate, uh, you know, um, um, the, the, uh, uh, the content. Yeah, fair enough. You know, you uh, know but, where but they, are. they are moved. Facebook and Twitter have figured or discovered that Donald Trump has crossed the line repeatedly. They finally yeah. had to, to, to save their own credibility <laughs> as, a, as companies. They have to label him this or that. And, uh, you know, I mean, like uh, Facebook um, that said uh, Donald Trump campaign ad used it's a unbelievable, Nazi symbol. Unbelievable, unbelievable, Can you comment on that one? I mean, you're, you're right. Well, I mean, I heard, I heard about it and I didn't believe it until I saw it. And I saw it and I, I, it was so out of context. It's like, okay, so yeah, yeah, rant, we hate the liberals. They have to be stopped, blah, blah, blah. And then you're going to show the inverted red triangle. Exactly. That, that, means, that means nothing to anybody in the world except... We know it was used by Hitler in the concentration camps to mark, uh, you know, their enemies. You know. Yeah. Well, what uh, about this? Uh, I mean, yeah, as as a conceptual artist, uh, what about this thing that um, uh, the, the Trump campaign manipulated and doctored this, uh, you know, you know, uh, two-year-old boys, you know, black <laughs> and white, uh, yeah. you know, they're best friends and they were yeah. running towards each other and they're hugging. And then they doctor it in a way that, that it shows a you know, completely diametrically opposing message. Yeah. Well, here's the thing. Here's the thing. Here, here, look, let, let's face it. Here's something. Look, if, if we're to believe, and I do believe that Trump didn't know that England, you know, UK was a nuclear power. He didn't know that he thought right. Finland was part of Russia. You know, yeah, we know. He didn't know anything. He, he doesn't know who's alive, who's dead. He doesn't read. I'm sure he didn't know what an inverted red triangle meant either, quite frankly. So who the hell is writing this text? Who, I, I mean, it's not him alone. He's, of course he has, not, of course not. So what the hell is going on? Who's running the show? Who's running the country? Who's really dismantling the justice system? Who's really, like, it's, it's, it's every, every conceivable, uh, um, uh, what do you call it? Not stopgap, uh, failsafe. Uh, uh, what do you call it when you're, uh, stopgap? No. Anyway, every like yeah, you know, you have these things that are supposed to trigger, you know, every 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 uh, <laughs> what's the word? <laughs> but every everything, every barrier that should exist 
to mitigate against uh, tyranny has right. been dismantled. Right. And that's, that's surprised me. I did not expect that. They've done a really good job of, do, of, of doing that. Yeah, but the, I, I think like, you know, for, for uh, the both of us are obviously um, 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 the co uh, concern about the dehumanization and then, you know, what follows that process, you know, like... Dehumanization. Uh, that's a, yeah. the dehumanization. That's the oldest book, trick in the book. Yeah. Jews are and, like rats, you know. The, yeah. do, you, do you see some kind of parallel like others? You know, like uh, the former Secretary of Labor, uh, Robert Reich, under um, uh, Bill Clinton, uh, the, now um, the Professor of Public Policy at, um, at, uh, at Berkeley. He was at Brandeis before. Yeah. Um, he recently tweeted that for three years um, since uh, Trump came into um, um, uh, power, uh, the, he said that he refrained from using the word F word. You know, I thought he was going to swear. No, 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 no. Yeah. It's a word. He said, you know, f basically like uh, Robert Reich yeah. um, called Trump openly uh, fascist. Yeah. And then yeah. you talk about like dismantling of these like checks and balances, institutions that you know that were put in place to prevent the the emergence of a, a tyrannical regime or tyrant because the United what my States father said about rhetoric what my father right. said about rhetoric it's like but from day one good people on both sides final yeah. solution like at what point do you say okay come on <laughs> it's not a it's not it's, it's not something misspoken it's not i mean there you add it all up and it's a right. pretty awful picture Right. You know, and 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 uh, you know, and using even even using rhetoric towards the chief justices, saying that it was like a shotgun blast to the face. Right. You know, using that type of violent rhetoric. You know, what's he up to? Is it just to appeal to a, a minority in the country? I guess I don't know. And how big is that minority? I'm curious. But right. So um um the finally um you you were working on the um this documentary on fake news. Yeah. Not a documentary. It's a piece of fiction. I'm sorry. Okay. It's a, it's a, it is a piece of fiction. But in the film, I have cameos, uh, uh, people playing themselves. I have uh, members from the National Security Council. I've got human rights activists. Uh, in the same way we live uh, in a society today where it's uh, almost impossible to believe what we hear or see, uh, I'm going to mimic that in the film as well. Um, so it's about post-truth, weaponization of information. It's rather dystopian. Uh, you know, setting the new ground rules. Where do we go from here? And uh, and yeah, so it's not. So there are elements of uh, of a reality in the film, but uh, it's it's a it is a piece of fiction. Okay. Um. Um. Finally, finally, uh, as an artist, um, do you, do you approach every piece of creation, you know, in whatever medium, uh, with the intention of conveying a particular message? Or do you approach it as something of a therapeutic act? Because we all engage in this, whether we are activists or academics or doctors. There's something deeply personal that we may not articulate. Uh, but there's also like, you know, the, the public messaging. And how do you balance these two if you, uh, if you juggle between the two? I think, uh, I think, First and foremost, it's uh, it's a um, it's an internal obligation, right? So, uh, on the one hand, I respond to sociologic dilemmas, but on the other hand, it's in it's an internal obligation to create. 
and if I can keep them, if I can, if I can sync those two things up, it's, it's great. Um, it's usually, it's usually not like I, 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 it's not like I'm launching like a propaganda campaign, you know, uh, uh, that's not It's usually I am compelled to create something. And then I look to see how does this plug into the sociologic dilemmas of our time. So, and so it's, it's, is it, is it therapeutic? Yeah, I guess it's therapeutic in the sense that if you were to keep me from doing it somehow, uh, I would be unwell. Uh, actually ph photographing human faces is a, is a, is a curious thing. I don't really consider that part of the, the corpus of my artwork. It's something I think of more like a hobby. Um, and, and, it, and that is therapy. And if I go a period of two or three, four weeks, you know, without photographing one person, uh, I usually catch it or if I don't, my, 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 my partner does. Um, but, uh, I, I become, I don't, it's not that I become unwell. My life starts to unravel actually for re for reasons I just don't understand. I have some funny theories about if you have a talent and you don't use it, the universe punishes you. I, I like to think that, but I have no idea. But all I know is that if I don't uh, go through this ritual of photographing people's faces, my life falls apart. Yeah, it's probably like a me and uh, weeding in the garden or, 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 or running. If I don't run, you know, for like three consecutive days, my body started to feel jittery and uh, and I'm getting yeah. like, really grumpy. And so, you know, some kind of... So um, any final thought on any subject that you wish to share? Any final thought on anything is... Um, it's not that we're not going to see you tomorrow. No, 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 no of course, of course. Um, <laughs> the, uh, I mean, I, I think what we're talking about, when we, li we live now in a world where we're, we're, we're pretty much can't believe what we see or hear, between deep fake technology and, you know, and, and, uh, um, and, and, and technology that's making it difficult to even forensically analyze fake content, uh, you know, to out fake content. Um, what does that look like then? Because we've always, you know, we, we turn to, uh, we, we have to turn to a source. We have to turn to a source for, for our news. I mean, we have grown up in a society uh, in which we turn to news to be, be informed. Uh, but are we entering into an, an age now where uh, we can't even trust the news agencies? This is what concerns me because the news agencies aggregate their content as well. So, uh, you know, the, and, and, you know, what happens, it's not going to be the government, you know, the, you know, what happens, and we see how that works out when the government's like, if it doesn't come from us, uh, you don't believe it. So I, I just, you know, then, then it becomes a situation, well, if you do, do you have to see it, see it and hear it firsthand in the wild, you know, um, and then the sci-fi uh, uh, fan in me starts to wonder when you see somebody in the street, uh, are they even real? <laughs> That's a few years off. But, but, but this is our reality. Our reality is that technology has facilitated the subversion of truth. Okay? And how do we go forward the next five years, 10 years, 20 years? I just don't know. I'm, I'm excited to find out. Yeah, well, I mean, you, we, we, we cannot live in a world uh, in a healthy manner. Um, where everything unravels, you know, in terms of its validity, and 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 then perhaps like worst, uh, worst, our own ability to believe, you know, and that that will be rather a damning. And so, um, uh, Kevin, um, it's been great pleasure, and uh, we My will pleasure. release it on Sunday, 
And and thank you so much. And uh, you thank keep you. well and stay away from you Donald too. Trump. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> Take care. Bye. Yeah. Bye bye.